Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Life seems to be a series of interruptions. Have you ever thought about this before? Phone calls, conversations, knocks on the door where we feel like life, our, our plans are made, are laid out right in front of us, and there's always seems to be some sort of interruption. We can make well-made plans. We can have visions for what our life is going to look like or even our week is going to look like, and then we find interruptions through it all. And I often find ourselves wondering, like, when we think about this, if we could accomplish anything at all because of interruptions and look back and wonder how anything was accomplished or done because of it. And I wonder if those interruptions in life are always the plan all along, where we may feel like these interruptions that happen in life are sort of the inconveniences, but I wonder if this was actually the plan that was supposed to happen all along and with God and his sovereignty and in control, that he wants those purposes to be a part of the plan for our life in which God uses for his good and my good and your good, and he uses that to accomplish his purposes in their lives. And so when I look back on interruptions that have happened, um, I know that I like routine. Raise your hand if you like routine in your life. If you're like, I like this, (laughs) most of us like routine in life. And so uh, raise your hand if you like randomness. Okay, we got very few um, that like randomness, but some, but some, I see you, I see you random people, I see you, Um, and so we like routine, I know we are creatures of habit, are we not? We like to sit in the same pew and seat every Sunday, and we like kind of the sit in the, the rows and all these things, we like these things, and so they're found in a certain way, yet what I find out as I grow older is that we ought not to miss out on the interruptions that God brings our way because it may be God trying to get our undivided attention. And sometimes it can feel like the interruptions we face is God's hand that is not at work in our lives or in our circumstances as well. And so at various points throughout the Joseph story, there are interruptions that occur. And the more wisdom I've gained, the more life is rarely accomplished in a straight line. And I often think that God wants it that way. (laughs) And across the pages of the people that are lived and lived throughout the Bible and Um, Life is rarely accomplished in a straight line. And across all the pages in the people of the Bible, life is very accomplished in like this perfect order. And the Bible is a good source of content because it's telling us life as it really happens. So over the course of the story of Joseph, there's this series of interruptions that occur. And for the brothers, um, God was shining a light on them in order to illuminate, in order for God to illuminate their past together and to shine a light on that. So if you copy the scriptures you can grab the Bible in front of you if you'd like, and uh, page 34, and it's a Genesis chapter 44. It's also on the screen behind me, and I hope uh, we at this church value the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures, and I pray that you would find a church that does the same thing, that preaches and teaches the Scriptures faithfully. And so we've talked about this, but the story of Joseph is about a family, and I know many of us, including maybe even all of us, <laughs> are walking through some, some struggling circumstances in our families. And I know some of us, maybe some of us, are very positive circumstances happening in our families. And God's working in the midst of those and working and moving, and you've seen that. And I'm trusting God to do this restorative work in our families. 
however bleak or, or, or kind of frustrating it can feel or seem, that God's going to begin to show himself in the midst of this story through the verses and the lines, and the real stuff of the real God, of the real Bible, would come and define yourself in this place of being in this story. And I, I just know that there's a real God and there's real family life, and I know that God wants to do this restorative work in this. Um, so big picture, this, this is kind of like... I hope this helps us think about the story and the scripture passages as they appear. So when I say the big picture, I hopefully this kind of helps us think through the story of Joseph. And sometimes, um, including the Joseph story, it may be helpful to think about where this lands in the story of as a whole as well. Story is about a family and how a family walked through some very deep hurt and secrets and sin and lies, and that crippled that family for nearly, for over 20 years. And it's also about God. (laughs) And despite how messed up and how broken sometimes and mangled and messy life can get, there is a God weaving redemption through it. That's the story of Joseph. And point being, if you feel like your family is messy, you're in good company. Because Joseph's family was messy. It's in the Bible. And I'm also fascinated that like Joseph's story is the first book of the Bible from the very beginning, <laughs> that Joseph's story is this family that was riddled with jealousy and envy and all of this, but yet there's a God who is weaving a story and plan of redemption. So as I kept thinking about this, there's a reason why God included this story, number one, in the Bible, and number two, in the very first book of the Bible. And because the Bible is telling us life as it really, really comes, and it is. And so the Joseph story is about 12, a family of 12 siblings from a family where Joseph, uh, Joseph was loved more than the other brothers, and it's very overt. It's from the beginning in Genesis 37. Joseph gets this fancy robe that none of the others have, and Joseph receives these God-given dreams from God. We know this from the beginning of the story, and Joseph receives these dreams from his brothers, and I'd encourage you to read this and, uh, from Genesis 37, and it begins with some envy and jealousy and favoritism. Mark this story from the very, very beginning. And so his brothers don't like the fact that he's got the fancy robe. He's got all these things. He's got uh, these God-given dreams. And his brothers become very jealous of the fact that he has those things. And so then the brothers begin to plot his own murder. And so they begin to plot this. They begin to kind of put this together and put this plot together to, to murder their brother and to then fake his own death and uh, to their father, and it's this whole thing, and then they sell him to some merchants passing into Egypt. And so Pharaoh has dreams, and when he gets to Egypt, goes through this process, Pharaoh has these dreams, he interprets dreams for Pharaoh, a lot of things happen, and then Joseph gets to second in command. And so after the span of about 20 years of when Joseph's brothers uh, sold him and covered up his murder to his father to all the way in Egypt. There's a span of like 20 years that happens. And then the brothers come to Egypt because of a famine. And so when the, when the brothers who are from a faraway place in Canaan, uh, they have a famine and then they go to Egypt because the Egypt's the only place to have famine. And they don't know that Joseph is there. They're not sure who Joseph is at this point. He's disguised and he comes to Egypt uh, in this famine and he's second in command uh, as well. And so if you're those brothers at this point, and if you're coming, to Can- if you're coming from Canaan to Egypt, and um, you're coming because you and your family don't have food, it's a famine. And so Egypt's the only place to have famine, and that's where Joseph is, and they don't know that Joseph is. They, uh, 
assume maybe he's a dead at this point. I'm not sure, but he's, he's alive, and they're not too sure who he is and, or, or, or his, what he looks like. He changed his appearance. And so this is kind of where we are um, at this point in the story. And then last week, we talked about how Joseph gave them a feast that they did not deserve. I mean, can you imagine like being in this place of like giving these brothers a feast of something and they wronged him 20 years before this, and they were the ones who sold him into slavery and all of these things. And yet Joseph gives them a feast and they come back together um, at the story in this juncture of this point in the story. And it was this big reunion of sorts. It's kind of this emotional thing that happens in the very last chapter that we read in this part of the story where Joseph's brothers and Joseph meet together again. And it's again, the brothers don't know that it's Joseph, but Joseph's know that it's his brothers. And so you can know this from this very scrumptious feast that they have, the highest of highs in the Egyptian court, and yet Joseph still wants to serve his brothers after all those years of hurt, all of the, what happened 20 years ago and, and betraying him, and yet Joseph still serves his brothers. And it's, it's this crazy, it's this amazing story of God's grace and Joseph's grace, and that even though that those brothers, they were on the road to repentance, and God was illuminating this all across their journey, that we're going to shine a light on the fact that God, they have not yet dealt with their past sin. And so God was working through the story and toward genuine repentance toward one another. But it, it also means this, church, that even this also takes time. And for those brothers, long, long story, and it takes time. Many of this takes time. It doesn't mean that it's easy, but they are moving in the direction that God wants them to go. And so now, and after 20 years, their previous sin was coming to light in order to make genuine hope and healing possible. God often does this in our lives. He often shines a light toward darkness, toward sin in our lives that often, that often feels heavy, um, that God wants to shine that a light to make healing and hope possible as well. And so no matter sometimes, church, how much we want to drown out or claw away some of the things in our past that we haven't fully dealt with, God shines a light on that. God shines a light on that in our lives. And so if you recall, they sold him to Ishmaelite merchants passing by, and that shows that they knew exactly where he was going. They knew that he was going to Egypt, and their past was catching up to them. And so when they come to Egypt because of the famine, their guilty conscience kind of starts to come back to them. It sort of haunt, sort of can haunt them as well. And oftentimes sin can do that in our lives. I mean, you're in a famine, no food, starving families, and they hesitate to go to Egypt because they know exactly what happened. They had sold their brother into slavery into Egypt. And now here is call coming back together again after 20 years. And they haven't fully, but yet God was at every turn weaving this plan of redemption for them and redeeming this family and bringing full healing and restoration to this family as well. So we're going to read Genesis 44, starting in verse 1. And um, uh, if you uh, uh, follow along, this, so this is a good story. So Genesis 44, starting in verse 1. It says, Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of the house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack. His name was Benjamin along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. And as morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. Gone far from the city, when Joseph said to his steward, 
Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. And he said in verse 10, so this is kind of Joseph kind of setting this up to put this silver in the sack. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. And then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And Benjamin was uh, Joseph's, Joseph, Benjamin and Joseph had the same uh, mother. They found it in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes and all they loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah, and Judah does the talking here, we'll find out. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We are the one who is found to have the cup. So I'll just say this from the, from the get-go. Judah is going to say this long speech, and yet it's going to be sort of in the third person. It's going to, it's going to be a little confusing, I think. It's just a little bit in the third person where he says things on behalf. If I'm saying, if I know English right, I think, I mean, it's been a while since I took English. But, but Judah is saying things on behalf and saying it to the, to the other. So I, I, forgive me, I have not taken English class in a long time. But this is sort of the, this is kind of what happens here in this chapter. Um, interesting, just a little note here. God has, uncovered, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And it's interesting to say, I think there are some things that, that Judah is realizing on collectively on his brothers, that things are happening that he recognizes that they've done some very wrong things in their past. Joseph said in verse 17, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. And so kind of like at this point, Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. And at this juncture, we can wonder... Are they actually going to change? Are they actually going to do this? Or would they choose Benjamin? So are they going to send him? Are they, you know, are they going to send him back? Or is real change going to happen in this point, in this juncture? Where would they choose and what would they choose in this? Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant. He's talking about himself, though you're equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or brother? And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. So he says, Judah says, his brother is dead, and that's not necessarily true. 
because he's not dead. They sold him, but he's not necessarily dead. He, they, when they sold him, he wasn't dead. So then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. And if he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little bit more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother, who's Benjamin, is with us, we will go. We cannot see the man's face unless your, servant, unless your youngest brother is with us. So, and Judah continues this kind of this speech, this story. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he is surely... He has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. And if you take this from me too and cause and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. Now this is, this is Joseph's father, uh, Jacob, speaking this. That gray head down, he's rehearsing this about what his father said. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if the father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, See that the boy isn't there and he will die. Your servants will bring, bring the gray head of your father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, I do not bring him back to you. I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. Truly, like something has happened here where he's saying, okay, he can go, I'm going to replace him, right? So like, I'm going to replace him. And so I'm not going to send Benjamin. I'm, there's some change that's happening here with the attitude of these brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come to my father. Okay, thank you for hanging in there. It's a rather kind of long 34 verses, but there's a lot to glean from this, and we'll kind of unpack this and walk through this. Be throughout the course of the Joseph story, this is what we find about Joseph. Joseph is not trying to get even with his brothers, but and he's trying to bring about true and genuine repentance. He's trying to bring repentance out of them, which is why he puts the silver in Benjamin's sack. And it's God's way of using Joseph is to place this silver in Benjamin's sack, and that spurs on this very long speech by Judah. And, Joseph, and Judah is one of the brothers of Joseph, and Joseph has done this. He's done this kind of thing on several other occasions. Not necessarily as He's done this several other times during this story. And we see some of the steps in the right direction for the brothers. We see that, the same, that there are some good directions going. But Judah has an interesting history here. He's got an interesting history, of course, with his brothers. But way back in the very beginning, Judah was the one to sort of spur on and sort of speaks up in the very beginning in verse 26. And Judah was sort of the one to sort of sell the brother to Egypt. And in verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So on one hand, Judah is collectively saying this. He's like, yeah, this is, you know what? Um, let's not kill him, but let's sell him. He was, but also at the same time, he's part of the plot to get Joseph um, out. 
So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And then we see sort of this turnaround with Judah. God was working on Judah after all of those years. The path toward repentance and the road back into this was working, and they were all becoming changed people. And mind you, this was the same guy who was in on the plot at the beginning. And then Judah starts to this long speech, really um, coming to the defense and honestly um, doing some, saying some really good things in this, in this thing, saying some good things in this speech as well. It kind of reminds me of this, like this has been 20 years since this has happened, and now Joseph is in this situation What would it look like, church, to not give up on people, even if they're hard to love? Could it be that the person, or maybe it's your Judah, might be an instrument of mercy in your life, even if you can't see it quite yet? It's been the course of 20 years ago. It was Joseph at the age of 17 on the throne. Uh, It was Joseph at the age of 17 who is not on the throne of Egypt at this point, but he's in the the bottom of a cistern in the middle of a desert with the voices of his brothers just a faint distance away. Joseph's cries for mercy were ignored, and 22 years later, it's Judah down on his knees before Joseph, and he's trying to keep his brother Benjamin. And his father's other favorite son out of slavery. And not just that, it was Judah offering himself as a slave to Joseph. I wonder if it's just crazy to think we've been hearing about this from Judah. How much grace would it take to not lord, lord this portion? If you're Joseph, of course his brothers don't know it's Joseph yet. How much grace would it take to not lord this over your brother or your sister or your in-laws or your parents? to kind of try to try to take advantage of this situation. I mean, Judah was the one who was in on the plot, and Joseph has all the cards in his hand at this point. But when this story turns, church, it's, it's not just simply Judah or Joseph anymore. It's people in our family portrait, those closest to us, the cast of folks in our broken and messy families and family histories. What will we do when we're faced with a similar situation, a similar occurrence? Will we offer healing grace or shaming guilt? One solution brings life, while the other solely deals with the demise of all of our current and former aspirations for a family. And what Joseph did is known to us because it's recorded in the Bible. And how will we proceed with this? So during this speech that that Judah gives in front of Joseph, that there are steps in the right direction, and then there's some contradictions in the story. He doesn't fully, there's some, there's some like he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't actually die yet, but there's some contradiction. He can't bear to see his father suffer, even though I'm sure he's felt inadequate this whole time. We know that jo- Jacob loved Benjamin and Joseph just a little bit more than all those brothers. And we, his father overtly loved him more, and we know this, and his father overtly loved him more than the others. Jacob has not been the upstanding father and morally straight guy that, that God wanted him to be, and people can be quite complicated at times. <laughs> people can be quite complicated at times and difficult to love. We don't need a, an amen to that. People can be quite complicated and quite difficult to love at times. Sometimes it isn't easy. Yeah, 
right? Let's be honest. We, this is the place we should be honest, right, in church. Sometimes it isn't easy. Sometimes people contradict themselves. People go this way, they go that way. And on the side of Joseph, he still deeply loved those brothers after all those years of strain and hardship that they put him through. Steve Elliott says it this way, church, and this is honest, and it's brutally honest, and it's truth. We must learn to accept people whose lives are made complex with all their contradictions as much as we want people to love and accept us when we live out our contradictions. Some folks may never change and become who we want them to be or need them to be, but our task is not to change people. Our task ultimately is to love them and let God do the work of changing, as he did here with Joseph's brothers. Let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting, right? Our task is to love them and let God do the rest. And as he did here with Joseph's brothers, let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. God is the one who's going to change people. And can we be honest for a second? There are days where there's more of Judah than Joseph. Contradictions. God often shines a light through the Holy Spirit to illuminate our contradictions on a daily basis. And despite our contradictions and waywardness, we live into the Holy Spirit to shape us and to mold us into Christ's likeness, and He molds us to be the best kind of people we can be in order to live out these relationships that seem very unfair and broken and messy. But maybe you're like, man, la-di-da, that's great to hear. It's amazing. That's great. For me, that's great. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's cool for you, whatever. That's cool for Joseph. But like, man, this week was rough with my family. Man, this weekend was terrible with my friends. Man, this week was hard with the people in my life. There is so many contradictions and waywardness in this. The coworker was frustrating. My boss was difficult. My family is out of sorts. It feels that way. My conversation yesterday didn't go so well, kind of thing. And I'm reminded this in John 13, a new command. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples in the New Testament. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must what? Love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one, if you what? If you what? Love one another. John 15, 13, love each other as I have what? Loved you. Greater love is no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And Jesus says this, and I know I've said this before, but Jesus does not tire of reminding us that the main fruit that he wants in all and every disciple is heart for the people around us, heart for the people that are given to us in our circles. That that's the main fruit that he wants, the heart for the people in our circles, heart for the people around us and the people were given to us. And I imagine those disciples in the New Testament were given these one another's in a very unique way. And I know, like good old-fashioned, honestly, getting along with each other. We are all given our own one another's, and, and, and it, we are all given our one another's. And the main thing that Jesus wants from us is also it's his main heart that he wants us to do is to trust him, 
but also to have a heart for the people that are given to us in our circles. And he cannot seem to remind us enough of this focusing responsibility horizontally to people all around us. In Galatians 5, all the fruits of the Spirit are relational, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love's a decision. Joy. Even when it's difficult. Peace. When the relationship's at full throttle. Patience. When you want to throw the hammer down. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. When you really want to bark. Self-control when you want to be selfish. May it be us more like Jesus. More of His Spirit transforming us and making us into His image and likeness. And when I think about the many, many times in this Joseph story that Joseph could have done some, some damage to his brothers and could have offered some sort of vengeful reaction to his brothers, God often shines a light on the brothers' hearts, in my heart and your heart. And I think of the many times that God often shines a light on us to bring us into maturity. And oftentimes that's really hard and that's really difficult, but it's always to bring us into a fuller and richer and more obedient relationship and walk with him and more of God's spirit and less of us in our lives. And what gives me great hope is the fact that Judah's heart was beginning to change after all those years. Sometimes, I'm just going to say, like sometimes relationships just take a long time. But true spiritual change is possible. And if you, you're like, maybe, you're, maybe you've been praying for that family member or friend or coworker or somebody really close to you, you've been praying for them for a long time. I just want you to know with Judah's life, true change is possible after all those years. And it can take a long time, but it's Judah, a God who had been working on him throughout all those years. And it means that there are seasons and years where it may feel like God is absent or God is not there. God's not working. I'm telling you, church, he is working. He's working in your life and the lives of people that you've been praying for. And I often wonder if this discipleship journey is more of a marathon rather than this 100-yard dash. That God did not throw in the towel on Judah or any of those brothers for that matter. That God was with them. So might we too, church, be more apt to really trust in God's work and others and that the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting in their lives. To trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do heavy lifting in their lives. Can I just, for a second, just kind of pause here and I just want to, affirm this morning, I imagine many of us or most of us are in a current situation or family circumstance where it can feel downright heavy. Can I just affirm like this morning that God is in control? Like whether it be a friend or family member or the like, that God is in control and that God knows and God is bigger and hears you and understands it. There's a verse in the book of Isaiah that reminds me that even in those hard conversations or long ones or those family relationships that may be strained, that there's a God and there's a God who's doing new things all the time. And maybe we limit God's work. Maybe we limit this newness that God does. Maybe we limit this because sometimes we feel like it's just hard. 
But there's a God who's doing new things all the time. There's a God doing something in the daily lives. And it reminds me of a guy in the Old Testament named Isaiah. He lived 700 years before Christ. And this guy named Isaiah was a prophet. And he was a prophet to God's people. And prophets were often mouthpieces to God in very difficult circumstances and in periods where things seemed very bleak and destruction had occurred. And here is Isaiah saying this. And he's saying this on behalf of God. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it's spring up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. In the book of Revelation, we find that God is also in the renewal-making business even now as we fully await a day in which there will be no more pain or sorrow or the like. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, see, I am making what? Everything new. Not just some things, but everything a God of new things and tomorrows not yet realized. Isn't a God not relegated to our human efforts, but a God working in the in-between moments and spaces that seem very bleak. Based on what we know about God and the God of history and is the God of today and the God of tomorrow. And he's a God who can make it happen because he is good. And God specializes in raising dead things and restoring dead people to become new living creatures in Jesus. And that's who God is. And he's the same God in the midst of your family, and he's doing it. I'll end with this thought from Steve Elliott, his author Steve Elliott. He says, I don't know what Joseph devised for an outcome. I don't know what Joseph devised when he put this silver in their sack, when he devised this plot with the cup. But whatever he had hoped for was certainly met and matched by the response of Judah and his brothers. I'm not too sure what to expect if there's a meeting in your estranged family life or your friend network, if there's a meeting. But know this, God has a stake in those lives. And his stake in those lives is to bless and to heal and to reconcile that. Behold, I am making all things new. Amen? As we uh, take communion, you'll grab the elements.